This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to present some data from a study I did to evaluate the ecology of hominin scavenging, but I'll start by talking a bit more broadly about how archaeologists can use evidence from butchered animal bones to understand prehistoric meat eating in terms of potentially both hunting and scavenging. So as someone who studies prehistory, I start with a totally blank canvas when I attempt to reconstruct the diets of ancient humans. I try to paint a picture of the past that I know will always be incomplete. We will never have all the pixels, but I'm dedicated to finding the filters on the lenses through which we can peer back in time and try to reconstruct something rich in detail, like this National Geographic illustration of what I can only describe as a hominin meat picnic. Um, One of the fun things about studying hominin meat eating is there are so many different lines of evidence that we can use to do so. We can use chimpanzee and human forager diets, and the talks earlier today have addressed some of this. We can look at hominin fossils themselves. We can look at the size and shape of teeth. Um, The talk before mine by Margaret addressed this a bit. We can look at jaws and skulls, and we can look at even body size and shape. We can also look at the chemistry, which is what the talk before mine um, really focused on, of those actual hominin fossils. We can look at animal fossils, particularly those with direct evidence for butchery, Um, and that's what I'll focus on a little bit after this. To do that, we often use a method called actualism, where we either do experiments or make observations in the present. We look at bones on the present for traces left of behavior from those experiments or observations. We then look at fossils in the past, see if we can find similar traces, and then we can infer that similar behaviors occurred in the past. We can also look at the archaeological record at tools made by hominins that were used for meat eating. And we can even use newer methods like looking at ancient molecules. And so less than a year and a half ago, a team of archaeologists announced that they had found ancient animal proteins, basically the residue of blood, skin, and flesh from animals, on the edges of 17 stone tools from an excavation in Jordan dating back to 250,000 years ago. It kind of blows my mind a bit that now we have direct evidence for even what kinds of animals hominins were butchering a quarter of a million years ago. In this case, we're talking about camels, wild cattle, rhino, horses, and duck. So I use a method called taphonomy. This is the lens that I most often look through to examine the diets of early humans. Taphonomy is the study of what happens to an organism after its death until its discovery is a fossil. Here's a great illustration by a paper by Nina Jablonski and colleagues of a possible taphonomic scenario resulting in the accumulation of giant panda bones in a cave in China. I'm particularly interested in what happens right at and after death. So that's that middle row, really between boxes number three and four. And when it comes to thinking about hominin meat eating, the main way to investigate this is through the study of animal fossils with butchery marks, including cut marks made from skinning, disarticulating, and defleshing animals, as well as percussion marks left by bashing bones open to get at the fat and calorie-rich marrow. I also study tooth marks and other chewing damage left by carnivores. The lens I use is literally a hand lens, like a simple magnifying glass that I can use to identify these marks on fossil bones. So I'm going to take you on a taphonomic timeline of what we know about the earliest evidence for hominin carnivory. And the bulk of the evidence for the earliest carnivory in human evolutionary history really comes from three sites in Ethiopia. The oldest is a 3.3 million year old site called Dakika, where a team um, led by people including Jessica Thompson and uh, Shannon McFerrin discovered just a handful of bones, including those pictured on the left with possible butchery marks on them. Two other sites from Ethiopia called Gona and Bori. The bones on the right are from um, pictures of bones with butchery marks from Bori. Those date to 2.6 and 2.5 million years ago, respectively. They also preserve a handful of butchery marked fossils. While much ink has been spilled about whether some of these marks are actually butchery marks and not marks made by crocodiles, mammalian carnivores, or other butchery mark mimics like sedimentary abrasion, the importance of these sites is that they signal the beginning of a dietary shift in hominin evolution to occasionally, but apparently only occasionally, butchering and eating animals. 
There was a shift at two million years ago when we have the first evidence of both persistent carnivory and early access to small animals, and I'll explain what that means. And the image up here is of some butchered animal fossils from this site called Kanjera South in southwestern Kenya. This is some research that I've been involved in, led by Rick Potts and Tom Plummer, as well as um, Jennifer Parkinson and Joe Ferraro. At Kanjera, there's clear evidence from hundreds of butchery-marked fossil bones, animal bones, that hominins acquired and processed numerous, relatively complete small animal carcasses for meat and marrow. They got to these animals first before other predators and butchered the meatier parts of them. So that's the early access part. The Kanjera hominins also had at least occasional access to meat and marrow from larger-sized animals. An important difference between this and the earlier sites where we do see evidence of hominin butchery is that there's evidence for hominin butchery on bones at Kanjera from three stratigraphic intervals that span hundreds to thousands of years. So hominins were coming back to this place in southwestern Kenya over and over again over a long period of time to butcher animals. This is what persistent carnivory is. And this gives us a sense that this dietary behavior is becoming more important, or at least it's becoming more commonplace. Just a little bit later in time, uh, work led by David Braun in a place called Kubifora in northern Kenya, um, there's evidence for hominin butchery marks on uh, turtles, crocodiles, and fish. So at this time, hominins are already broadening their uh, butchery behavior to include both aquatic as well as terrestrial animals. There's another shift that happened about one and a half million years ago um, from several different bone assemblages from the sites of Olduvai Gorge, some of which date back to about 1.8 million years ago, and Kubifora, some of which date back to 1.5 million years ago, um, led by a, a variety of different teams. There's evidence from the skeletal parts that were transported and butchered. At these sites, hominins had early access to large animal carcasses. Basically, they were now able to get to these carcasses first um, and butcher the meatier parts of large animals. Um, the photo up here is of butchery marks on a one-and-a-half-million-year-old on one fossil antelope leg bone from Kubifora in northern Kenya, and this is part of an assemblage that I studied and excavated as part of my dissertation. So you're probably picturing hominins striding out onto the African savanna, armed with their stone-tipped spears, getting ready to hunt these animals, like this bronze sculpture reconstruction of a Homo erectus from the Hall of Human Origins at the Smithsonian, carrying a goat-sized gazelle on her back. Well, the earliest solid evidence for hunting technology doesn't come into the record until half a million years ago, with these spear points from a site called Katupan in South Africa that have what are called diagnostic impact fractures on their tips, indicating that they were definitely used as the ends of weapons. It's possible that hominins were hunting with unmodified rocks or sharpened sticks made into spears, maybe like the Fongoli chimpanzees, or other basically archaeologically invisible tools, but we haven't figured out a way to detect this yet in the prehistoric record. And this is particularly likely in, in the case of the small animals at Kanjera. So many of the small animals themselves were juveniles, and very young defenseless antelopes are often stashed in thick grass clumps for several weeks by their mothers. It doesn't take very sophisticated technology to basically walk up to those little antelopes and bop them on the head, and then you have dinner. So what made early human carnivory or early hominin carnivory unique, particularly compared to the possible diet of our earliest ancestors as well as the diets of chimpanzees? There are four things. The first is that it involved big animals, and so animals much larger than themselves. As you heard from the talks earlier today, chimpanzees don't hunt animals that are larger than themselves. Um, this is a, a really useful reconstruction of an extinct elephant being butchered by a group of Homo erectus based on a one-million-year-old archaeological site I'm involved in studying from a Smithsonian research site in southern Kenya called Alorgosile. The second thing is that it involved tool use. And um, rare occasions, including the Fungoli chimps aside, um, we don't think that our earliest ancestors necessarily used tools when they hunted. Hominins also don't have the sharp teeth of mammalian carnivores to be able to get through the skin of large animals, let alone slice meat off of their bones and bash them open to get marrow. It also likely in involves something called deferred consumption, which is basically not eating something right away as soon as you find it. This is a weird thing that humans do. We don't go to the grocery store, sit down in the middle of the aisles, open the packages, and start eating, I guess, unless we're really hungry. Um, but in the earliest record of um, hominin meat eating, we have evidence that hominins transported carcass parts to central places for some kind of communal consumption, potentially food sharing. 
So if early humans were eating meat from large animals for about 2 million years before we have evidence, good solid evidence for hunting technology, how were they getting access to them? One suggestion is that they were scavenging the leftovers from large carnivore kills. And I should point out that this is something that is very rarely seen um, in chimpanzee behavior. Chimps don't seem to look at dead things and think of them as food, things that are already dead. Um, there, so what does scavenging look like behaviorally and ecologically? There have been two main kinds of scavenging that have been proposed for early hominins. The first is called confrontational or aggressive or power scavenging. This is when hominins actively chase carnivores off of kills, presumably getting access to a lot of meat and marrow in the process. There was probably a pretty high risk of injury or predation of the hominins themselves when they did this, and there are a few hominins with bite marks on them from carnivores to indicate that this did happen at least occasionally. The second is passive scavenging, and this is waiting until carnivores are completely done eating a kill, they've moved off, the scene is safe, hominins could go in and eat the leftovers. One of the main criticisms of the passive scavenging idea is that there probably wouldn't be much worth going after when carnivores were done eating their fill. But is this the case? I decided to try to answer this question by simulating passive scavenging in a modern African ecosystem similar to those in which our earliest meat-eating ancestors lived. And I'm very happy to leave simulating confrontational scavenging to somebody else. (laughs) So is passive scavenging worth it? Um, The research I'll be talking about here was part of my dissertation, and it was published a few years ago in the Journal of Human Evolution. Um, In 2002 to 2003, I spent seven months in a game reserve in central Kenya called Olpegeta Conservancy, um, which you can see here on a zoomed-in map of Kenya, um, and I simulated passive scavenging. I specifically chose this conservancy, Olpegeta, because the, felid, the, the carnivore community is dominated by lions, and most models of hominin scavenging are based on interactions with large felids, including lions, leopards, and extinct saber-tooths. There have been a few other scavenging studies that were done before mine, but these were done in the Serengeti and Ngorongoro ecosystems of Tanzania, as well as the Masai Mara ecosystem of Kenya. That's actually all one big ecosystem that happens to be separated by an international border. Um, But these ecosystems have unusually high numbers of predators and particularly high competition among predator species. So I was interested in going to a felid-dominated ecosystem to simulate passive scavenging. So um, Olpegeta is an African savanna ecosystem. It was about 100 square kilometers when I was there. It was called Sweetwater's Game Reserve when I was there. Um, Now it's been expanded to almost four times that size. Um, And here you see some images of what it looked like there. Um, It has mixed grassland and woodland vegetation. All the photos on this slide are photos I took in the reserve. The vegetation map on the top left shows open grassy areas that are in black. They generally run east-west on kind of high plateaus. Um, The photos with the giraffe with the zebras in the background are a good example of what those open grassy areas look like. There's a permanent river called the Owasso Nero that runs north-south through the reserve. You can see that on the western side with that green strip. Um, That green is basically riverine vegetation, trees particularly dominated by yellow fever acacia or acacia xanthophloia. There's a picture of that on the top right. The dominant bush in the ecosystem is called euclea. This is noted in the bright blue areas. You can see that on the top middle. Um, Whistling thorn acacia or acacia drapanolobium are also very prevalent. Those are noted in light blue on the um, vegetation map. And the yellow and pink areas on that map are areas of mixed bushland, woodland, and grassland in kind of different proportions. The predator community during the time of my study was dominated by lions, as I mentioned already, and the herbivore community was dominated by zebras, followed by warthog, impala, buffalo, and baboon. So my study methods were pretty simple. After finding out about a carnivore kill from a variety of sources, I would wait until the lions were completely satiated, like this one in this photo with a distended belly full of warthog. This was a really happy, sleepy lion. Um, And I would document what was left on their kills. I had two advantages over my earlier ancestors. I had a four-wheel drive vehicle, and I had an armed guard with me at all times, lessening the likelihood of me becoming one of my own samples. In the time that I was at Olpegeta, I collected 24 kill samples from several different species of carnivores, which you can see in the left column of this table. But I'm going to focus particularly on the lion kills today, as that's my largest sample and the most relevant for thinking about models of hominin scavenging. 
I separated the prey into two size divisions related to how we classify the size of animals when we're doing archaeological analyses, but here I'm just generally calling them large or small. Larger animals are over 250 pounds, small animals less than 250 pounds. I documented the location and estimated the amount of meat left over after the lions had their fill. And here are some examples of what these leftovers looked like. The top right is a picture of a zebra rib cage with quite a bit of meat left on it, and the bottom right is a picture of a part of a limb of a young Grant's gazelle with hardly any scraps left. And I should say specifically that I followed previous researchers in defining bulk flesh as masses of muscle more at least 10% of their original size. Flesh scraps were usually pieces of flesh less than the size of the palm of your hand, but over two to three centimeters and weighing more than about a third of a pound. So how much meat can a scavenger eat from a large animal, something like a zebra or a large antelope? I'm going to walk you through the axes of this graph before I show you the data. So the x-axis is a skeletal element or bone arranged in groups from left to right with the total sample size of each bone listed in parentheses. The important part is the left Two bones are bones of the hind limb, then bones of the forelimb, then bones of the torso, and all the way on the right are bones of the head and neck. The y-axis is the proportion of those bones in all samples with three different levels of flesh availability. And I basically colored them like a traffic light. Green for bulk flesh, yellow for flesh scraps, and red for no flesh. So what did I find? You see a lot of green and yellow on there. In large kills, over 50% of bones were abandoned with large muscle masses still on them in green, and 95% of the bones had either bulk flesh or flesh scraps, which you see in yellow. That's from large prey. Small prey is a different story. Only a single bone on smaller lion kills retained bulk flesh on it. About half the bones still had some flesh scraps, and the other half were totally defleshed. You can see that in red. And one take-home from the study is that if you're an early human scavenging from a lion kill, the size of the prey really matters. So how does this translate into actually how much meat a scavenger could eat? We can use weights of adult wildebeest and zebra, which are pictured here. The hind limb of a wildebeest yields about 19 pounds of meat, a zebra about 50 pounds. A defleshed hind limb of a wildebeest would be about two pounds, defleshed zebra about five pounds. That's only a single hind limb. A defleshed wildebeest carcass could yield 12 pounds of meat. A defleshed zebra carcass could yield about 34 pounds of meat. So if we estimate four calories per gram of meat, this is about 2,200 calories from a wildebeest and almost 6,100 calories from a um, zebra. And these are defleshed. Um, so, um, Translating this into things we can understand here, that's about a little more than five and a half in and out burgers worth of meat from a wildebeest, a little more than 15 and a half in burgers worth of meat from a zebra. Um, um, using an estimate of somewhere between 2,100 and 2,300 calories per day required for Homo erectus, a defleshed wildebeest is pretty much your daily caloric requirement. This is even without breaking the bones to get at the marrow inside. So the main take-home message is that I think scavenging from even relatively defleshed carcasses would have been a profitable and worthwhile activity for hominins. I just want to acknowledge government of Kenya, the funding, my PhD advisor, and the people and the predators and the prey of Olpegeta. Thank you. So the idea that women have evolved to be plant gatherers and men hunters has dominated evolutionary thinking and the popular imagination for decades. It's been suggested that men are better navigators than women as a result of a long history of natural selection on hunters who can pursue mobile prey across vast landscapes without getting lost. Men are thought to be more cooperative than women because throughout our evolutionary history, they've needed to work together to bring down hunted prey much larger than themselves. Men's hunting is argued to have driven the evolution of our two-legged gait, supplied the nutritional advantages in protein and fat to support our energetically expensive brain, and given our juveniles the luxury of a long pre-reproductive life of relative leisure in which they can take the time to learn all the skills of adulthood. Although it's widely recognized that women's gathering is usually the more reliable contributor to family subsistence, we also tend to think that men's hunting must be, on the whole, more productive than women's foraging because they often take very large animals. Some have even argued that the origins of the nuclear family, where men and women cooperate in different tasks, lie in the evolutionary origins of female specializing in childcare and depending on a man's hunting production in order to feed her children. 
The generalization that men tend to hunt and women gather holds for some well-known contemporary hunter-gatherers. So among the Hobbs in Tanzania, for example, women primarily gather plant foods, lower-quality, small-packaged food items, high in carbohydrates, and men typically spend their time hunting, acquiring higher-quality, large-packaged food items, high in protein and fat. Similarly, among the Juntwasi in Botswana and Namibia... And the Aceh in Paraguay, women specialize almost entirely on plant-based foods while men hunt. However, this is not a universal pattern. There is a great deal of variation among hunter-gatherers in the extent to which women do specialize on plant foods. And many hunter-gatherer women do acquire animals. There's the Agta, the Ainu, and the Dene, where women hunt deer. The Cree, where women hunt caribou and geese. Central African Aka women hunt for dikers and forest pigs. Mixed-gender communal hunts for rabbits were common among the Shoshone, and Paiute women hunted, and in many cases still hunt, ground squirrels and prairie dogs. Australia is another place that challenges our understanding of who hunts and why. Across Australia, prehistorically, women were active hunters. They had a primary focus on the hand capture of small to medium-sized animals. And in many locations, women skillfully used fire and hunted with dogs to improve their efficiency. For example, Phyllis Kayberry found Walmajari women in the Kimberley in 1935 were using dogs to hunt kangaroo and monitor lizards. And she suggested that the family was dependent on the woman's efforts to a greater extent than on those of her husband. In the 1950s, Jane Goodale also found that Tiwi women were active and productive hunters. And she, too, characterized women as the most consistent providers, not only of plant foods, but of meat as well, especially meat from small animals. People I work with, Mardu. Mardu women of Australia's western desert, too, are hunters more than anything else. On any given day, between about 60 to 70 percent of the bush food that's produced is from women's hunting. Women take more than half of the parenti. This is one of the largest species of monitor lizard, aside from the Komodo dragon. Women also take a little more than half of the feral cats. Feral cats spread into the desert starting about 100 years ago and were readily adopted as prey by Mardi hunters. Women will take, take about 20% of the bustard and 6% of the kangaroo. So bustard are the largest flying bird in, in Australia, and males can weigh up to 20 kilograms. Kangaroo are the largest endemic non-human in Australia and weigh up to 80 kilograms. So these are large for Australia. Not for Africa, but for Australia. The staple prey of Mardi women are the smaller sand monitor lizards, sometimes called goanna, and they acquire more than 80% of them. They're easily the most abundant large vertebrate in the desert. They weigh about half a kilo. Women hunt them in two ways, which vary seasonally. In the hot summer months, they track the monitors on the surface, hoping to chase them to trees or corner them in the open to avoid having to dig them out of their dens. In the winter, the monitors are denned most of the time, and they have to be dug out. So to accomplish this and also to aid in the search for fresh dens, women burn the spinifex grass that obscures the tracks and signs. Women often cooperate with each other in sand monitor and parenti hunting, so they work together to burn an area for hunting, to locate tracks and dens, and then to extract the animal. Now, the most important thing nutritionally about a monitor lizard is not the meat, it's the fat. So lizards become dormant in the cool season. They lay down about 10 to 20% of their body weight in the form of large fat bodies in the abdomen and the tail. And most people say a skinny lizard isn't actually worth eating, so women really pride themselves on being able to find and capture fat ones. Now, while Mardi women do a lot of hunting, they also do most of the collecting, too. So they produce nearly 100% of things like roots, 98% of insect larvae, 90% of the fruit, um, a lot of the nectar, and about 30% of the honey. Now, in comparison, men are looking for small things. About 30% of the time they're out foraging, but most of the time they prefer to search for the larger animals, like emu, kangaroo, and bustard. And rather than hunting cooperatively like women, they primarily hunt alone. Now, the social context of hunting is similar to what you might see in any hunter-gatherer society. So women leave the residential camp and a group of other women, often with children along. They establish what they call a dinner camp. They acquire food. They return to that temporary dinner camp to cook and consume food socially. And then they return to the residential camp at the end of the day. So the question that I'm going to start off with is, why are women hunting? So traditionally, if we think about men's hunting, the goals of men's hunting are explained in usually in one of two ways. So either men are hunting in order to provision a nuclear family, or men are hunting to show off their skill and attract alliances and favorable, favorable attention from women. 
In many cases, the kinds of hunting that men do don't appear to be well designed to provision others. Um, And when men focus almost solely on large animals, they sometimes run the risk of coming home empty-handed, especially in more arid environments, such as this one, uh, where animals are patchy and very infrequently encountered. So per hour spent hunting, a kangaroo hunter does tend to average a higher return than a monitor lizard hunter, taking home over a kilo of meat, while a sand monitor hunter gets only a third of that. But the meat from larger animals, kangaroo, buster, that sort of thing, comes in only very infrequently, about once in every five hunts. And although the average is higher, there are often many days when nothing is acquired by any hunter. So in comparison, women's hunting is much more reliable than men's. They don't have as many big bonanzas, but they also don't have as many days with less than they might need. Men only end up outproducing women on 25% of days, and on 37% of days, no men are successful at hunting any type of game. Fully a third of these meat droughts are between about three and six days in duration. And for women, in comparison, failure is less than 5%, and they don't have any meat droughts. So even though larger animals have a higher mean return, in reality, this obscures the fact that men's production comes in the form of these periodic huge bonanzas and long meat droughts rather than a steady daily stream. The meat from larger animals is also distributed widely. The hunter keeps only about 10% for himself and his own family. After sharing, the returns to a hunter's family in terms of the grams of meat per hour hunting is the same, regardless of what kind of animal has been acquired. Now, if women's hunting is more reliable and provides similar payoffs to family consumption when successful, as does men's hunting, then it might suggest, maybe, that the goals of foraging for men and women are different, that men might be hunting to show off their skill and attract alliances and favorable tension, while women are foraging simply to feed themselves and their families. So women hunt more reliable, smaller animals, and they trade off this reliability with larger harvests because reliability is a better way to reduce the risks of going hungry. Um, So it might suggest something like men hunt to share and women hunt to eat. Men use the hunting and sharing of highly valued meat to engage themselves in these political arenas of social competition and social support. And kangaroo hunting by men is an overtly political game where young men hunt for public consumption, they donate their labor to gain the trust that's required to gain access to deeper levels of ritual secrets, which are very important for men. They work to provide meat for all, especially in-laws and potential in-laws, without any material reward in order to gain the trust of older men who guard the way that secret ritual knowledge is transferred and gained. So a man who demonstrates willingness to work for the public good is trusted with more ritual secrets, and he can rise in the ritual hierarchy. A man who demonstrates willingness to work for his in-laws was traditionally trusted with the opportunity to marry their daughter. Hunting for men is as much about ensuring trust and cooperation in the distribution of meat as it is about showing off skill and acquiring meat. When men talk about the benefits of hunting, they emphasize that they hunt to share. They don't hunt to eat or favor their own children and families over others. If men hunt to share, do women then hunt only to feed their families? When you hunt with martyr women, what puzzles you the most is not the hunting, it's actually the sharing. So more than 70% of the time, women's harvests of small animals are shared well beyond their own families. And on an astounding 23% of lizard hunts, a successful hunter will take nothing for herself. She gives it all away either to her own family members or to other people sitting around the cooking fire. When women share, they often exchange identical lizards, and the hunter will always give away the largest prey to someone else. Lizards are shared to others who have already eaten. Um, In this video, the hunter returned late, and she's the last to cook and share her harvest. And she gives away nearly the entire harvest to other women and men in the group. She keeps only the bottom half of one for herself. Um, One of the women that cooperated with her hunting, she receives three lizards in the initial division. She passes two to those sitting behind her and one to the woman on her left. And the hunter passes one to her husband. Things are transferring back and forth. And ultimately, out of a harvest of six large lizards, each hunter received less than 8%. And all of the non-hunters got portions that were actually bigger than each of the hunter's portion. And the goal in this distribution was to make sure everyone present around the fire had an equal-sized portion and nobody went hungry. Not only do women share extensively with each other, they share in ways that don't make sense economically. 
So women often exhibit a producer's disadvantage in sharing. So when you have a producer's disadvantage, the size of the portion the hunter, the producer keeps, is smaller than the average size of portions given away to those that didn't participate in the hunt. And the usual cross-cultural pattern is for producers to take an advantage, to compensate themselves for paying the cost of going out and acquiring the food item, right? They usually keep a portion that's bigger than any of the portions that are given out to non-hunters. But when Marta women hunt small animals like monitor lizards, they often keep a smaller individual portion than the average portion size given to a non-hunter or family member. And we don't see this pattern for men. When men share small animals, they'll take the producer's advantage, and they'll keep a larger portion for themselves. Women, compared to men, also give away more portions. Given an average size harvest, women will give out more than twice as many portions as men. They usually give out around six um, compared to men who give out two. Because they give out more portions than men, their average portion size is a little bit smaller, but they prevent the portion size from becoming too small by stinting themselves in favor of feeding others. Now, the cost that the hunter pays doesn't seem to be balanced by shares coming in. So a successful hunter gets significantly less from others than an unsuccessful hunter or someone who didn't hunt at all. So that the hunter who acquired the most often takes home the smallest share of meat after all sharing has been accounted for. So women are way too generous with small prey than we might expect if we're thinking about sort of the simple economics of sharing. It's also the case that in the sharing, women are not just sending those larger shares to family members, stinting their own consumption in favor of their children or their close kin. Women also share widely beyond their own kinship network, and they also share mainly to other women. So this is a network of sharing relationships between people who made dinner camps with each other. The circular nodes, the circles are women, the squares are men, and the color corresponds to the kinship clusters in the bottom diagram. Okay, those are the four or five major kinship clusters in the community. The ties between each of the nodes are those who had shares of meat passing between them. Sharing cross-cuts kinship ties, and it brings together women from all kinship clusters in the community. So our hypothesis that women are hunting to provision their families seems poorly supported. Why hunt at all if, it's only going to share, if you're only going to share most of it to unrelated dinner camp members? Marta themselves suggest that one of the main reasons that women hunt is to acquire meat to share with other women. When Marta women talk about hunting, they describe their underlying motivation as hunting to share. This is especially the case for women who are known as murliya, good hunters. Anyone can gain the status of a good hunter, but to be a murliya, you don't simply produce more, you also share more of that production with others. So as one hunter put it, when a murliya goes out hunting, she has a good feeling that she's going to get so much and be able to feed others. Good hunters always think that when they go out, and it helps them to hunt better. When a really good hunter goes out, she gives so much away and takes home only a small piece for herself. But she will always walk away feeling bukarpa. Bukarpa is what women see as the reward for Merlia. So bukarpa means generally warmth and happiness. But it's a happiness that's the product of generosity that binds people together. Without generosity, you feel you're not in a family. You're just for yourself, not for everybody. You don't share things. According to Mardu, good hunters share in order to demonstrate their commitment to building family and contributing to the public good. And this is the kind of sharing that we would experience around the dinner table. It's the sharing that cements social relationships, that feeds and nourishes, but treats everyone like family. Theoretically, we know that the generation of warmth and trust through demonstrating generosity tends to have substantial effects on the likelihood of cooperation. And there's been quite a bit of experimental work suggesting that people tend to cooperate with and trust more those who demonstrate generosity. And this suggests that one reason women share so widely may have something to do with their cooperative social networks. Marta women are more than twice as likely as men to hunt cooperatively, and for some hunting activities, more than 40 times likely to be cooperative. Women also cooperate in childcare, cooking, and other daily activities in ways that cross-cut their residential group memberships. Older and younger women, even those from different hearth groups, will team up to cooperate in child care and different forms of foraging and subsistence activities, dividing their labor so that some will hunt while others collect. One of the most frequent forms of cooperation today is in small animal hunting. And so this is a small animal cooperative hunting network. Hunting partners help each other out in tracking, digging, and searching for prey. They usually pool their catch. Again, the same sort of colors are indicating the kin groups. And it turns out that women who are more generous on average, but not those who are necessarily the best hunters, are more central in this cooperation network, meaning they have more partners, and they have more partners who are also more generous. So this supports the hypothesis that one of the main reasons that women share is to foster more cooperative relationships with other women. 
So this story of women's hunting in desert Australia gives us a much different picture of the goals of hunting and its associations with gender than we've generally gotten from other hunter-gatherers. It breaks a lot of our assumptions about who hunts and why. Foraging women can be efficient hunters and trackers, and small animal hunting can be just as productive and more reliable than large animal hunting. Women can even specialize on small animals if it's reliable enough. Women can support a number of others from their hunting efforts, not just children, and can engage with others as cooperative political and social agents outside of the spousal union. Women can share meat outside of their immediate families and draw on those ties created through meat sharing to engage in other cooperative endeavors. Women can form divisions of labor with other women and in so doing collaboratively, collaboratively both care and provision dependence with meat independently of men. So a model of the origins of human hunting and sociality based on women's acquisition and sharing of small animals, I think, is at least as plausible, if not more so, than models based on men's hunting of big game and women's dependence on men's hunting production. Thank you. I, uh, I do study chimpanzees in a savanna, and I'd like to tell you a little bit more about that site because it does have a lot of um, importance as far as the, the chimpanzees' hunting behavior goes. And this map I will show you most of the long-term chimpanzee study sites um, operating today, not all of them, but these sites, um, most of them here, have been ongoing for at least 10 years, and in some cases, in the case of Gambia Mahali, uh, more than 50 years. And so uh, most of you are probably familiar with Jane Goodall and at least um, the person, but uh, Gombe is the site that she helped establish that Ian talked about. I'm um, across the continent, and I'm over in West Africa. This is my site, the Fongoli uh, study site. And I chose this site because it is in a savanna. And we think that um, our lineage, uh, evolutionarily speaking, evolved in this type of, of habitat. And so I'll show you some images from the site. My, my underlying questions have to do with um, how these chimpanzees differ from chimpanzees living in forests, like the chimps we've heard about before at Ngogo and Ngambi. And I uh, will cite Jim Moore here. He's written a lot about using chimpanzees as what we call a referential model, and that is comparing them to chimpanzees living in a forested site. And the assumption is that the environment will have effects on their behavior. And I, I did think this going in. I had ideas about what the differences might be. And the chimps kind of went their own way and showed me a lot more differences, including hunting. And so I'll talk to you about that today. So the, I'm going to talk about three main questions, and I focus on the types of hunting or aspects of the Fongoli chimpanzees hunting that you don't necessarily see at other sites or that are very rare. And so one of the things that we see here commonly is that chimpanzees hunt with tools, and that's something that we use to define our own species. It has been seen um, literally a handful of times at another site in Tanzania, but at Fongoli, chimpanzees do this um, quite, quite frequently, so we've seen hundreds of cases now, and I'll talk to you more about that. Um, so one of the questions that I'll, I'll, I'll touch on is why, why hunt with tools in this particular habitat? Something else that is not really common at other chimpanzee sites is that, in fact, in regarding this particular type of hunting, females are, are more frequently going to be those hunting with tools compared to males. And as we heard, that's just not the case um, in most other chimpanzee study sites, so I'll talk more about that. And then to follow up um, with, with David's talk, I will talk about meat sharing, or I use the word sharing, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about how I define that, but I'll specifically talk about how females dole out meat. And then finally, I'll come back to this idea about um, using chimpanzees as a model and what perhaps the Fongoli chimpanzees that I study can help us um, say or think about in terms of the evolution of early hominin or bipedal ape hunting. So these are some images from my study site. The Fongoli uh, study site is one of the hottest, driest, and most vegetatively open sites that you see today, where chimpanzees have actually been habituated to a human presence. So this took us quite a long time. It took us four years. I started in 2001. And we habituated males to our presence by 2005, but I wasn't able to identify all the chimpanzees in the group until 2006. That's when we identified all the females. This is a view of my 
pretty fancy camp there. And uh, hopefully that gives you some idea of the vegetation. So it's a woodland savanna. The dominant understory is grass, um, thus savanna. But you do have um, a large proportion of the habitat as woodland. So over half of the habitat is woodland. And only a very small portion is forest. About 3% of the habitat is forest. And this is where you find your water sources. This is really the chimpanzee's most limiting resource at Fongolia's water. Temperatures are incredibly hot, really hot for me, even hot for chimps. So right now we're, um, the well, yeah, the month, month of March in Senegal is almost approaching the peak of the dry season. So temperatures are regularly over 100 degrees. They may get up to 115 or so. During the rainy season, or at least at the beginning of the rainy season, you find some relief because the trees will put out leaves again. They lose all their trees during the dry season. But yet you have this lag, you have hot temperatures, and then you have this high humidity, which is really fun. And so literally, <laughs> the heat index in June is around 120, 125. And that's when I take students out. <laughs> So a little bit about the Fongoli study group. Um, within this particular habitat, they have a very large home range, 110 kilometers, which is one of the largest, if not the largest, um, so far described. The community size is relatively small. It's not the smallest chimpanzee community studied, but it's on the small size, around 35 chimps. And importantly, we have a sex ratio that is sort of the opposite um, of what you see at other sites. So we have more males than females. That's usually not the case. And um, the data that I'm going to talk about today stem from 2005 to, through 2017. One other thing I'll say about um, adult males versus adult females is because of the fact that when I first got to Fongoli, I heard that even though chimpanzees are not eaten at the site, and this is not within a national park, this is outside of a national park, so you do have villages in the area, um, anthropogenic or human disturbance accounts for about 5% of the habitat. You do have chimpanzees living alongside people. They're not habituated to them. They're habituated to us, so we're okay, but other people are not. But in rare cases, you do have people that will try to hunt a chimpanzee in order to get a female's infant for the pet trade. And we had that happen one time in 17 years. And because of that, I focus on adult males as my focal subjects. The Fongoli community is often together as one large group, so I can collect data on females, but they are more timid when they're by themselves, and I don't try to, try to follow them when they're by themselves. So I think I, I know a lot about what is going on with males, and I know some about what is going on with females, but perhaps not as much. So this pie chart gives you an idea of the prey species consumed by Fongoli chimpanzees, both by males and by females. And um, as Ian pointed out, there are no colobus monkeys in this particular habitat. So it is a savanna woodland habitat. Colobus monkeys don't occur here. Um, forest guinans like red-tailed monkeys or other colobus monkeys, blue monkeys, do not occur here. Instead, you have savanna species like baboons, patus monkeys, vervets, um, you have mongooses, bushbucks, things like this. And then on the very lower right, you see that adorable little bush baby, and Ian introduced uh, the galago as well. The galago is actually the main prey species of Fongoli chimpanzees, both males and females. And this is the animal that they hunt with tools, and I'll actually hopefully show you some video of that and talk more about that. So the prey profile, if you want to call it that, really reflects the savanna type of habitat. And it does also support, as um, Ian pointed out, um, or talked about what is called a risk-averse strategy. So I'm just going to show you some video and, and try to narrate it here. So this is tool-assisted hunting. Uh, what this image is going to show you is an adult female. That's, if you can't tell, that's Farafa. She's an older female. We estimate her age to be around 40. She's one of the top female hunters in the group. So she's trying to get at these adorable little bush babies that try to sleep in cavities during the day until this rude chimpanzee comes with a tool. That's an adult male. That's Jumpkin. And he goes about it a little bit differently. And so even though females hunt with tools more than expected, um, I'll talk a little bit more about that next, males do exhibit this type of hunting behavior as well. <laughs> I have to say he's usually better than that. <laughs> they just caught him on a bad day. 
We'll, we'll let Jumpkin try one more time. If you didn't guess, he wasn't successful in this particular bout. Um, So we're looking at a lot of different aspects of this. Uh, I I almost feel bad showing that. Um, We're looking at a lot of different aspects of this particular behavior. And so um, this is a juvenile female, Vivienne. That was her mother that was hunting. And um, the juveniles start this behavior when they're about two years of age, when they're still infants and nursing. But they don't learn really the proper, um, you know, tool length and that sort of thing until they get to be about four. So she gets a little frustrated too. <laughs> All right, enough, enough fun, I guess. <clears throat> so in terms of our results so far, um, I apologize because in your abstract I put over 500. I was sure that we would hit the 500 mark this year. 499. I just can't believe it. <laughs> But we have 499 hunting records. Those aren't all successes, and that's including adults and immatures. We've only seen adolescent and adult individuals successful in this type of hunting behavior. Um, Like I said, infants begin to exhibit it, and they do really good as far as making the tool, but they don't make a proper tool until they get to be uh, a juvenile. So we see about 32 hunts per year on average when you take into account that there are some days that we can't be there, the river's too high, or someone's sick. Um, we We think that they probably hunt at least 50 times a year. And again, our most recent analyses suggest that females do hunt significantly more than expected with tools, even though males also hunt. And we um, did analyses taking into account not only their membership in the the community as a whole, but also their membership in so-called hunting parties or parties that the chimpanzees are in on those days. So I want to talk a little bit more about just... um, the hunters themselves, and this is uh, a lot of color there, but I wanted to show you the, the top 10 hunters at Fungoli and also the different types of foods or prey that they hunt. And so um, you have two females that are actually among the top 10 hunters at Fungoli. Interestingly, I think is that both of those females, females are very high ranking. So Tumbo there is currently our alpha female based on these very stylized pant grunt records, uh, sorry, um, vocalizations. And we keep records of these vocalizations where a subordinate individual will pant grunt to a dominant individual. And Tumbo actually overtook that alpha position from Farafa there about two years ago. And so females actually do hunt some in this community, or at least enough to be considered among the top 10 Fungoli hunters. And also, I'd like to point out that we have a tie right now for the very top hunter, and one is the alpha male, that's David. He is um, tied for the top hunting position with Sibrut. And um, some of you will be happy to know that Sibrut, who is pictured there, is not only the oldest hunter in the group, he's the oldest male, but he's also the lowest ranking male as well. Um, and then if you look at female hunting behavior in general, females, um, almost all females hunt, and almost all males hunt as well. So they hunt about what you would expect, or at least their participation in hunting overall is what you would expect based on their, their membership in a in the Fungoli community. I wanted to look, uh, talk a little bit about Fungoli hunting um, and, and uh, the context of female hunting across study sites. So Ian talked about that some, and I've used data from his, his work and others to look at Fungoli female hunting. And in fact, um, there are females elsewhere that also engage in quite a bit of hunting. In fact, females at Mahali hunt a little more than females at Fungoli. If you look at Fungoli female hunting behavior overall. And then with you, when you look at tool use, you see that Fungoli females do hunt uh, quite a bit Almost half of the tool-assisted hunting at Fungoli is by females. And again, remember that we have um, fewer females at Fungoli. We don't follow females systematically like we do males. And so one question as to why females hunt is basically, as David started out with, it, um, you know, it's probably no surprise that, that chimps um, gain a lot of nutrition from hunting. But... I think perhaps a more interesting question is why females don't hunt more at other sites. And Ian uh, talked about some of these issues as well that I'll, I'll pursue right now. And so if you looked at, for example, theft... 
Um, there's not a lot of theft at Fongoli. So when I use the word share, I'm referring to basically the, the last three categories I think that David talked about. So active food transfer, but not theft, right? And passive food transfer, et cetera. So I consider theft to be a different category. And at Fongoli, we have very little theft. The only theft we've seen involves uh, two different alpha males. So very little theft. Whereas at other sites, you do have quite a bit of theft. And so I believe, as Ian said, um, females don't have incentive to hunt at some sites. At Fongoli, there definitely is incentive. And not only females, but this is a little video of, again, that lower ranking male. So out of 13 males, he's number 13. He's the oldest male. That's Sibirut. So he's walking by um, a number of adult males with this bushbuck fawn that he's captured. And no one makes any attempt to take it from him. He had actually been eating on that fawn for over an hour, and he had a number of individuals sitting around basically begging. He didn't share with them. And as he moves off, you'll see that there's another older male that will follow him, and this is his ally bandit. Where's Bandit? There he is, calmly following his buddy Sibrut out. And so he he did end up sharing with Bandit. So not only do you see um, some sort of concept of, well, I hate to say concept of ownership, but you see tolerance. So tolerance of possession of prey um, by dominant males of these low-ranking individuals, females, and also lower-ranking males. So I think that at Fungal, you actually have the incentive to hunt. It's one of the reasons that you see hunt so much hunting, um, at least tool-assisted hunting, in females. I want to show it a, a slightly different way. So these are those same top ten hunters, but rather than being expressed in the number of prey that they brought in, this is the number of kilograms or estimated kilograms of meat, right? And so you see that David has jumped up to number one position there. It depends on what you hunt. And almost everybody hunts bush babies except KL. We've never seen him capture a bush baby. But what's interesting is you see that the third top uh, hunter there, at least in terms of prey captures, Lupin has fallen quite low because he does seem to specialize on bush babies. So the females really didn't change positions at all. They're still in the top 10, but you do see a lot of variation. So that's something that we're looking at now. And so I wanted to talk just a little bit about um, what females can provide in terms of transfer or sharing. And we, so far, this is um, still preliminary to some degree. We've looked at sharing or food transfer by females. And again, I'm considering David's categories of active transfer, passive transfer, and scrounging, but tolerated scrounging. And I'm not considering theft in this category. Females actually shared with other individuals uh, more often than they did with their offspring. So that's something that we're uh, exploring right now. And basically, um, I would argue that females, as uh, Rebecca has pointed out, should be considered as well. And finally, I'll just move on to my last slide and um, leave you with a couple of thoughts. First of all, I think Travis Pickering said it probably better than, than I can. So he actually thinks that if you... Um, think about the tool-assisted hunting at Fongoli. It perhaps can tell us more about some of the early hominid hunting that uh, went on compared to the emotionally charged hunting of chimpanzees, as he puts it. And I'll just end up by saying, um, echoing what Rebecca has said as well about um, female humans, is that just now, and I think Richard mentioned this as well, we're beginning to understand more about female chimpanzee hunting and that they also play uh, a part in this scenario. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.